Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Molly. Let's be praying for Kelly and Judy's marriage. <laughs> well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark, and I, I'm just grateful to, to serve as one of the pastors here. I'm also grateful to get to serve as your tour guide as we go through another parable of Jesus in our sermon series on that topic. Uh, the parables of Jesus, eternal truths. Actually, I got that backwards. Earthly stories, eternal truths. The topic of our parable today is one of the most foundational and pertinent topics to the Christian life, the topic of prayer. But before we dive into it together, I'd like to ask you just one question, and that's this. Have you ever prayed for something but didn't get it? Have you ever prayed for something but didn't get it? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have ever prayed for something that you did not receive? Okay, this is a common experience. Even now, you might be praying about a vocational change or a resolution to a difficult relationship situation or a health concern or an adverse financial situation or all of the above at once. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray, but but nothing seems to change in your circumstances. And when that happens, if if you're at all like me, and I know I am, you're, you're tempted to believe one of three things or all three things at once. One, prayer doesn't work. Two, I must not be praying hard enough or I must be praying wrong or something like that. Or three, maybe God just doesn't care about me. Prayer doesn't work. I must be, not be praying hard enough. Maybe God just doesn't care. Have you been there? Can you relate at all with this? If you can, I believe our our time in Scripture this morning is going to be of great encouragement to your heart, as well as a great challenge to your heart, too. So if you brought a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we have some at the Connect Point that you can take as our gift to you. Uh, But open it up to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be studying the first 13 verses of this chapter with particular attention to the parable that Jesus tells beginning in verse 5. But to get the context, we're going to back up and start with verse 1 with some familiar verses. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John, speaking of John the Baptist, taught his disciples. Now, time out. Time out. Put yourself in the disciples' sandals here, okay? They've been walking on earth with Jesus for three years. They've had ample time to ask him anything they wanted to ask him. And and if, if I'm putting myself in their shoes, I'm probably asking about something else. Let's just be honest. I'll be honest with you. I'm... um, I probably ask him, hey, Jesus, can can you teach me how to preach? Because that'll come in handy with my vocation. <laughs> or, or, hey, Jesus, could, could you teach me how to walk on water? That, that, that could come in handy, too. It floods a lot here in Nashville. Hey, Jesus, could, could you teach me how to do that thing where you divided the bread and multiplied it? You know, that could be a neat party trick. Hey, Jesus, while you're at it, could you teach me all you know about quantum physics? You know, but the disciples had... Jesus, God in the flesh, the designer of the universe with them. But there's only one thing that Scripture records they ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do. And that's here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Lord, teach us to what? 
to pray, to pray. Well, why prayer? Why prayer? Well, perhaps because every time they turned around to look for Jesus, what did they find him doing? Pray. Matthew 14, 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he, Jesus, went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Mark 1, 35, after rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. There he prayed. Luke 5, 16, but he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, 12, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, 9 18, now it happened that he, as he was praying alone, probably away from the crowds, the disciples were with him. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. You're, you're getting a theme here, right? Luke 11, 1, our passage this morning. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Hey, Peter, have you seen Jesus? No? Huh. Oh, oh, wait, there he is. He's over there by himself again praying. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in perfect communication with God the Father, found it necessary to pray? And if Jesus found it necessary to pray, how much more should we find it necessary to pray? His disciples picked up on this need, and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Verse 2, Jesus begins to teach them. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. This is often, oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. It's a very common prayer found here in Luke, also in Matthew. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I, I could spend the entire sermon unpacking uh, these three verses this morning, and maybe I'll, I will at some ser- future sher- sermon, but, but for now, we just, I just want you to see it as the, the previous context to the parable that we're about to dive into. We'll come back to a little bit of the content of this a, a little later in the sermon, but for now, let's, let's move on with verse 5, where Jesus starts the parable. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs." There's the parable. Now, now, to understand the parable, we need two things, okay? The first thing we need is to examine the following context, because what Jesus says afterwards will show us that unlike the majority of his parables, this parable isn't a parable of comparison. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the parable of contrast. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it, okay? As a second thing we need to grasp is the cultural context behind this parable. We need to grasp the context in which Jesus spoke this parable. There's a lot of things going on that sound quite strange to our 21st century ears. So we've got to understand the culture that Jesus was speaking to here so that we can understand the message, so we don't miss what's really going on. 
A text without a context is just a pretext for a misunderstanding. Okay, so context, context, context is very important when studying the parable. So, as your tour guide through Scripture today, let me shine my flashlight on some of the historical and cultural context that's in the background here. We need to know that in first century Jewish culture, hospitality was one of the, the highest virtues. It was an, this, was, this was an honor-shame culture. And if a guest showed up, even unannounced, you were culturally obligated to show them hospitality, to feed them. And not to do so would have brought shame on you and your household. Also, depending on the season, travel was quite difficult during the heat of the day. And so sometimes travelers would make their way after the sun went down, as was apparently the case in this parable, when a friend unexpectedly shows up in the middle of the night after a journey. And the host is unprepared to to feed this unexpected guest. And so he does what would have been very normal in that context to do, in that culture. He goes to a friend's house and asks to borrow three loaves of bread to offer to his guest. Now, what's shocking to us in, in Western 21st century culture is not the sleeping friend's response, but rather the fact that this guy goes at midnight or in the middle of the night and knocks on a neighbor's door. Um, who does that, you know? We, we don't do that in our culture. If we hear an unexpected knock at the door at midnight, um, we're, I'm, I'm, if you're at all like me, I'm not, I'm not opening that door. I'm maybe peeping through the peephole or looking through the blinds discreetly. You know, um, all the while having my, my cell phone in hand ready to dial 911, you know? Because in my mind, it's probably a murderer out there knocking on the door. And if you're the gun-owning type, I'm not, but if you are, <laughs> you reach for your Glock a lot sooner than you reach for that lock, okay? So this... <laughs> Gabe is going to go, amen, yeah. Um, This midnight door knocking is what's shocking to us in this parable, but it wouldn't have been shocking to the original audience at all. In this culture of hospitality, they had an open-door policy during the daytime, and even when they shut the door at night, it was culturally appropriate to knock if you had a need. But what is shocking to the original audience is the sleeping man's response to his friend. After hearing about the problem through the closed door, uh, instead of saying, sure, I'm happy to help you out, I'm happy to help you avoid shame by assisting you with your hospitality issue, let me find some bread for you. No, instead of saying that, he says this, do not bother me, the door is now shut. As 21st century individualistic Westerners, you know, we're going, yeah, that's a culturally appropriate response. That's what I would say. But that's not the proper response in this culture. Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. Family houses in the ancient Near East were primarily very small one-room houses, oftentimes with a dirt floor, where everyone slept in the same room. So that sounds weird to us as well, but um, my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And right here is where you would have heard the gasp from the original audience. (gasps) Did he just say that? Did did he just refuse to help this man with his hospitality issue? Just think of the shame that's going to come from this. Who does this kind of thing? This is where the shock comes for Jesus' audience. And Jesus concludes his parable with verse 8, addressing the shock that would have 
that it would have caused in showing that this reluctant friend eventually does get up and help. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You know, the latter half of this verse is notoriously difficult to translate. The ESV doesn't do us any favors here by using a pretty obscure English word. Say it with me. Do you know what it means? I had to look it up. <laughs> you know, I had to, I had to, what does impudence mean? And, and, and I'm still confused, but um, if you look at the original language in Greek, most likely it's a, it's a word that should be translated shamelessness. Say that with me. Shamelessness. Because of shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. It's also somewhat unclear in the Greek text as to whether the shamelessness is describing the guy knocking on the door at midnight or the friend who's asleep in bed. So there's basically two ways that we could translate the end of this verse. Or how we could read it. The guy eventually gets out of bed, not because he's a good friend, but because of his neighbor's impudence or shameless knocking. Most translations go in this direction, and it's the traditional approach and probably right. Or the guy eventually gets out of bed, not because he's a good friend, but because he himself wants to avoid shame. That would certainly come from not helping a friend in need. He wants to be shameless in a positive sense. Now, figuring out what impudence means and who it applies to would be really, really, really important if this were a parable of comparison. In other words, if Jesus was telling this parable to illustrate by way of comparison how God answers our prayers, kind of like a reluctant friend who doesn't want to be bothered, then we better figure out what impudence means because that must be the key to how we should pray in order to, God, to get God to respond to us. And I've heard my share of, of, I'll just call them misguided sermons, that spend a lot of time here trying to figure out the exact meaning of impudence and end up twisting this parable into teaching something that it was probably never intended to teach. Teaching that we need to be impudent in the sense of being bold or shamelessly audacious or extremely persistent in our prayers in order to get God to answer us. How many of you have ever heard this interpretation of this parable? Okay, quite a few of you. But again, we've got to understand that this isn't a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. Well, how do I know that? How, do we, how can we know that? Well, just let's read together. Remember what I said about having to understand the post-context as well as the pre-context? Let's read together what Jesus says in the following context. Remember, keeping in mind the three most important rules for interpreting parables, which are? Yes, a text especially an ancient text without its context is just a pretext for a misunderstanding. So let's look at the post-context. When it comes to prayer, God is not to be compared to a reluctant friend. On the contrary, he's to be compared to a willing father and contrasted to a reluctant friend. Let's read verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So we see Jesus shift the illustration here. He shifts it away from a reluctant friend to what? To a willing father. 
a heavenly father that's more than willing to answer the prayers of his needy children, his earthly children. How much more willing is he than a reluctant, is a father than a reluctant friend? It's not inconvenient to him. He doesn't answer prayer begrudgingly like a groggy friend at midnight. And it doesn't require some kind of incessant persistence on our part to wear him down enough to get him to respond. How many of you have ever heard of the show? I'm not going to say how many of you have watched it. How many of you ever heard of the show, the TV show Family Guy? Okay, it's a cartoon. Please do not take this illustration as an endorsement of this show, okay? I've never watched a full episode, and what little of it I've seen, I've it's quick to understand it's not exactly wholesome entertainment, so don't send me angry emails about this. But there, there's one short scene from this show that's been widely circulated on the internet where the son in this cartoon family named Stewie is trying to get the attention of his mom, whose name is Lois. And I think it's popular because every parent can relate with this. She's lying on her bed resting, and Stewie walks up to the side of bed, the bed and some, says something in his overly adult English accent. Um, it says... I'm going to butcher an English accent, so I might not even try. Lois, 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 Lois. Mom, 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 mama, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. And it just goes on for a minute with different variations of the word mom. Have, have you ever seen that clip? Okay, a few of you, good. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, but finally Lois has enough and turns to him and says, What? What? This parable isn't teaching that we need to be annoying like Stewie in order to get God to respond to us. In fact, it's teaching us the opposite. That when we ask, we should expect to receive something, indeed something good, from a loving, good, responsive, heavenly Father that's contrasted to a begrudging friend. Now, notice that I didn't say that we should expect to receive exactly what we want, exactly what we asked for. I said we should expect to receive something good from a loving, good, and responsive Heavenly Father. Why did I phrase it like this? Well, because of what we read next in verse 13. Let's read it together. If you then, who are evil, thanks for that reminder, Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give? And and we're expecting Jesus to say what here? How much more will the heavenly Father give good gifts? But he doesn't say it. Instead, he says, how much more will the heavenly Father give what? Or who? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, Now, let's just be real with each other this morning. When you read this, aren't you just a little bit disappointed? Or am I the only one that's immature, <laughs> selfish, and unspiritual? Because when I pray, I usually want something specific that, that I feel like I really want that's going to make my life easier in my understanding or more comfortable or better in some way. I usually have something very specific in mind, and I'll take that to, to God in prayer and say, Dear Heavenly Father, will you please give me this, fill in the blank. And what's the answer in this text? Yes, I will give you what? Who? The Holy Spirit. Uh, okay. But, but what I really want is this. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. But what I really want is this. 
I know it's the life of God in me, but what I really want, I, I know it's the third member of the Trinity, but I, what I really want, I know that it's the supernatural enablement to do miraculous, redemptive work in the world that I'm powerless to do on my own, but what I really want, I know that it will create in me love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, but, but, but what I really want... I know that spirit will make me less self-focused and short-sighted and teach me to ask you for things that align with your kingdom and your purposes and not just my mini-kingdom and my comfort, but what I really want, can you relate? So what Jesus is implying here is that there's often a profound difference between what we really want and what we really need. And what every one of his disciples really needs is who? The Holy Spirit. And a loving Heavenly Father will always give us what we really need, not necessarily what we really want. He will give us what we really need when we turn to Him in prayer. He gives us the Holy Spirit. So now that we've unpacked this text, how can we apply it to our lives as Jesus followers? I'd like to wrap up today with three takeaways. Three takeaways. The first one is this. Takeaway number one. God, say this out loud with me. God is a good and loving father who is always attentive in our prayers. God is a good and loving father who is always attentive to our prayers. We don't have to figure out some magic formula of persistence or boldness or faith or shamelessness, impudence, in order for God to hear us when we call out to him in prayer. If one of my daughters were to call me in the middle of the night... Am I going to ignore the phone? No. You better believe I'm picking that thing up. Now, if it's someone else, I might let it go to voicemail. But if it's one of my daughters, I'm going to answer it. How much more? I'm an imperfect dad, but how much more would a perfect, loving, loving heavenly father respond to his children when they, come, when they come to him in prayer? God is a good and loving father who's always Attentive to our prayer. Takeaway number two, say this out loud with me as well. Prayer was never meant to be the means of getting God to do what we want, but rather the means for relating to God as we truly are. Prayer was never meant to be the means of getting God to do what we want, but rather the means of relating to God as we truly are. What do I mean by this? Well, here's the reality, my friends. What we truly are is needy. And this is why Jesus uses the relationship of a father and a child in relationship to prayer. God is the father, and we are the children. And if there's anything that I've learned from being a father myself, it's this. We don't call them dependents on our tax returns for nothing. One of the most fundamental facts about children is that they are needy, they're dependent, and we like children, must recognize our dependency, our spiritual bankruptcy, our neediness before God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. God is not to be approached like some cosmic vending machine that gives us exactly what we want if we punch the right buttons. As if he's there for the sole purpose of serving us and helping us build our own mini kingdoms here on earth. No, God is to be approached as a wise and loving, heavenly Father. As we recognize ourselves as dependent, needy children. 
children who don't know everything that he, the Father, knows. Children who don't have the wisdom that he has. Children who don't yet have the long-range view of life, the eternal perspective that the Father already has. Children who trust that even when their Heavenly Father doesn't give us exactly or everything that we ask for, it's not because he doesn't hear us or doesn't love us or doesn't have our best interests in mind. No, although he might not give us what we want, he will always give us exactly what we need for his glory and our good. He will give us exactly what we need for his glory and our good. Prayer was never meant to be the means of getting God to do what we want, but rather the means by which we learn to relate to him as we are. Takeaway number three, whether we realize it or not, the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit is currently our greatest need and the greatest answer to any prayer that we could ever pray. Say that out loud with me. I mean out loud. The last one was weak. The person and presence of the Holy Spirit is currently our greatest need and the greatest answer to any prayer we might ever pray. As we navigate this broken world while waiting for Jesus to return to make all things new, do you realize that we've been given the very presence of God We've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to be with us. And so as we ask for God and help in this life, in essence, our prayer has already been preemptively answered. He had not yet given the Holy Spirit to his disciples. But we, as 21st century disciples, have been given the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit that works in our hearts to bring about renewal and change. And it's through this renewal that the Spirit gives us peace and joy, the fruit of the Spirit, amidst any circumstance. So, so if we view prayer as the means for us to change God, rather than the other way around, we have it backwards. Prayer is meant to change us. That's why it's so important to pray. Prayer is meant to change us. If we pray and ask for the wrong things that God knows aren't ultimately for our good and his glory, our good is his children who don't know everything, who don't have the eternal perspective, who can't see the big picture that he sees. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's already given that slowly changes our perspective on our circumstances so that we begin praying for the right things. We begin praying for the character to handle the difficult circumstances. We begin praying, make me more like Jesus so that I can respond better to this difficult situation. We begin praying different things. Praying for things that are in alignment with God's kingdom and God's purposes. These are the kinds of prayers that God answers with a yes. And this is why when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray... He tells them to pray what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come. My will be done here on earth. 
No, as Warren Wiersbe once said, and I'll never forget it, to pray your kingdom come automatically means my kingdom go. To pray your kingdom come automatically means my kingdom go. By the means of prayer and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God aligns us with his kingdom purposes in the world. Prayer pulls us closer to God and his heart, and it changes us from the inside out, the power of the Holy Spirit. As the band makes their way um, back up to the stage, I want to end with one of my favorite quotes on prayer by uh, pastor and author John Piper. He says this, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of God as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. I'll be honest, that's oftentimes how I pray. God, give me more comfort. Take this situation away. Resolve this for me. Fix this. Prayer is never meant to be a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Prayer is meant to change us, to align us with God and his heartbeat as we join him on his redemptive mission in the world. So don't be discouraged when God doesn't give you exactly what you want when you pray. Be encouraged. He's actually already given you what you need in the Holy Spirit that indwells you. God is a good and loving Father who is always attentive to our prayers. Prayer was never meant to be the means of getting God to do what we want, but rather the means of relating to God as we truly are. And the person and work of the Holy Spirit is currently our greatest need and therefore the greatest answer to any prayer that we've ever prayed or might pray in the future. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you're attentive to our prayer. Thank you that you're not compared to a begrudging friend that that is reluctant to help. But you're contrasted to that and compared to a good father who gives his children exactly what they need. And you delight in doing so. Father, as we pray, would you shape us, mold us by the power of your spirit, that good gift that you've already given us to pray for the right things to pray not necessarily for changes in our circumstances, though you're okay with us asking. You know, my children sometimes ask for changes in circumstances all the time, and I don't mind. And so, Father, we know that you don't mind that, but, but teach us to pray also to be changed in the midst of our circumstances through your Spirit, who brings love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. May the fruit of the Spirit be abundant in our lives as we're faithful in prayer.